0: Today is a uh, unique Sunday for us since we're, we're celebrating the beginning of Advent and it is also our communion uh, Sunday morning. And so I would like to bring these two themes together today uh, by looking closely at one of the parts, one of the pieces of the Christmas story as it's found in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we know that the primary, the primary focus of the Christmas story is Jesus, the Son of God, taking on human form, being born of a virgin so he could die and be our Savior and is now our coming King. We, we, we know that that is the primary focus, the primary story of Christmas. But within that primary focus and that primary story, there are other perhaps secondary or supporting stories that are very, very important. Stories like the Magi or the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, the angelic host, all of these pieces that we, that we get to share and experience as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I believe it's in these supporting stories that we get a window into the heart of God and the purposes of God, and the plan of God in terms of his ultimate plan and work through the coming of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we celebrate the Christmas season uh, by focusing on the first advent, his coming, as was mentioned earlier, and also, as was mentioned earlier, in light of the fact that that first coming has changed our lives, it creates in us an expectation for his second coming. And so for those of us who have experienced the, the power and the life-changing impact of his first coming, we keep our eye to the future for the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. Now we're in the Christmas season, and whether we're ready or not, whether we want it or not, the reality is it is here. And one of the most central traditions of Christmas around the world is even though people celebrate in many different ways, those who celebrate Christmas around the world, there is something that most of us have in common, obviously, first of all, being the birth of Christ, but as far as our traditions go, and that is sharing a meal with family and friends around the table. And so it doesn't matter where you seem to go and what the celebrations and decorations and traditions might be, usually central to most cultures' celebration of the birth of Jesus is a shared meal around a table. Some eat it on Christmas Eve, some eat it on Christmas Day, and for many, the Christmas meal is a significant part of celebrating the Christmas story, that first advent, with family and friends. Now, there are specific things about the Christmas meal that make it special for people. It depends on what home you come from. For some of you, it might be that you have a tablecloth that was your great-grandmother's that's been passed down, and every Christmas you put it on the table and that's a special part for you. It might be the one time of year where you bring out special, you know, silverware or dishes and and you you decorate the table. It might be special fancy napkins and your family doesn't even know what to do with them because they, they've not seen them the other 364 days of the year. So they're not really sure how this this works, if you're allowed to touch them and use them or not. But, of course, the central focus of the table is the meal itself. And so, you know, it it just has different things for different reasons that represent different aspects of our lives and our culture and our families and our traditions, and so it makes up that special meal. I think what tells us most about our story, as people looking in, if they were to look into the window of our Christmas traditions and celebrations, what tells the most about our story is who it is that we share our table with. That's really the essence of our story. The people around the table are not there by accident. I don't wake up on Christmas morning and walk out and go, oh, I have no idea who you are. I've never met you before, but I guess you're here for the meal. I suspect that is not how most of you also approach your Christmas meal, that having strangers just randomly show up. The people around your table are not there by accident. They're there for a reason. There's a purpose. There's something that has created an opportunity for them to be invited to your table. Now, when we look at the accounts of Scripture in that first Christmas celebration, if you want to call it that, it's interesting to observe who it is that's invited to the table. And I won't spend a lot of time with all of them, because we, we, it's the whole, the whole Christmas season. But I will say this, what one might expect within the religious culture of the time, when something so significant is happening, those you would expect to be invited would probably be, well, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the political leaders, the who's who of culture. I mean, the king is being born. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived. Certainly, these would be the people who God would invite to this first celebration, to share in this first celebration. But they're not the ones that are at the table. They're not the ones that are invited to share the table. In fact, it was the most unexpected people who were invited to the table. God was very strategic in who he invited. And his actions of inviting to that moment send a very clear message to us as we reflect on the Christmas story. And so today, for a few moments, I want to share with us about table guests. And what I want to leave with you is this. We are all invited to God's table. We're invited to the table. But we're invited not because we deserve to be there, but because God in his grace has extended the invitation and has made it possible for us to come. And so today I would like to briefly consider a few of the people who were invited to the table on that first Christmas celebration. And one of my favorite, to be honest, I think this is my favorite part of the Christmas story from the Bible. If, you, if as you, as you look at the different pieces that Matthew and Luke share with us, this is really personally my favorite. The Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and the purpose of his writing is to demonstrate to those who would read his gospel that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that the hope of Israel had come and that Jesus was the Messiah and is the Messiah. And so Matthew opens his gospel right from the beginning with the genealogy of Jesus that begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus. And he wants to establish from the very outset of his gospel the validity of Jesus. He wants to prove and show to his readers that Jesus is not only a descendant of Abraham, but he is actually in the line of David as was prophesied of old that the king of kings would come through the line of David. And so Matthew wants to make sure that, that when these Jewish readers read his gospel, they can see and link together the fact that Jesus is the one. Now there are two observations that I think are important when it comes to genealogies. First is that ancient genealogies typically only included men. We may not like that. We may not want that. But the reality is this was written before the Me Too movement. And genealogies only included men. And the second thing is that the purpose of a Jewish genealogy was to highlight the purity of one's Jewish lineage And to show that there was no outside Gentile contamination in the family tree. And so those are two important facts in terms of the general approach to a genealogy at this time. Now what's interesting is that Matthew, who is writing to Jews, and those would be their expectations, not only does Matthew include four women, which is highly unusual at this time. But three of the women are Gentiles. And the other one is the widow of a Gentile. And so in in putting his genealogy together as he has, as the Holy Spirit has inspired his gospel, it seems to be breaking all the rules of what one would do in writing a genealogy. But God, by His Spirit, is up to something very specific, and a message He wants to send, and that's the message I want us to see. So let's just very quickly this morning walk, take a look at who are some of these characters. The first is Tamar, and uh, Genesis 38. The reason we didn't have a congregation member read the scripture this morning is because I'm just kind of being all over the place today, and it was we'd be here till next Sunday, finishing up the readings. In Genesis 38, we read the story of Tamar. We read the story of Judah, who is a son of Jacob. And he married, we're told, a Canaanite woman. And they have three sons. And we're told that the mother, who was a Canaanite, has had a significant influence, uh, you know, from her culture on this family. And so one son married a Canaanite girl named Tamar. And we're told that he was wicked. And I don't think that means like really good, but he was wicked and he died at an early age and he died before they could have children. So there's no heir. And the cultural practice at that time would be that the next oldest son would marry the widow of his deceased brother and any children that were born to them would technically be considered a descendant of the deceased brother, not the living brother. It was a way of honoring the dead brother with an heir. The next son refused the responsibility. He didn't want to marry Tamar. He wanted only his own children with his own wife. And so we're told that he too was a wicked man and died at a young age. I think the message here is if you're wicked, you're going to die young. I don't know. And so there's only one son left. And Judah is slow to act in this situation and and he makes an excuse to Tamar and he told her, he says, listen, the only son I have left is too young for marriage and can can you wait? And he makes her wait and wait and wait and time is ticking and time is running out because what Judah is doing and Tamar knows it is he is avoiding doing what he is supposed to do, what is right to do. He's avoiding it. He's delaying it. And in the meantime, Time is passing. After experiencing the death of two of his sons, we're told he now faces the death of his wife. After a time of grieving, we're told he decided to join a friend and travel to an area where the sheep were being sheared. Sheep shearing time was payday, it was when the money flowed freely, it was party time. And so Tamar became aware of his travel plans. And she's tired of waiting and the biological clock is ticking and she's getting older and she knew that the remaining son is deliberately being kept from her. So she decided to take matters in her own hands and to involve Judah himself in this process. And so she changed out of her widow's clothes. She dressed like a prostitute, covered her face with a veil and stationed herself on the roadway strategically as Judah was passing by. He becomes very interested in her. I'm not going to elaborate this moment, but he availed of her services. She insisted that because he was unable to pay, that he would leave his signet, seal, ring, and staff that a leader of a tribe carried, and they were very specific identifying items to a link to a specific person. And so she said, leave these items with me until he could return to her later with payment. We're told immediately Tamar returned home, changed back into her widow clothes again. Judah, in the meantime, sent a servant with a goat to settle his debt and to retrieve his belongings. But she was gone. The servant asked around about her and said, there's no prostitute in this area. We don't know who you're talking about. We've never seen anybody around. And so that was the end of that, or so it seemed. Three months later, a rumor came to Judah. He said, Tamar, there's a rumor out there that Tamar is pregnant. She's carrying a child, and the child is a result of prostitution. And Judah became very angry. And so he he said, you know, I want her to be brought out publicly and I want her to be shamed in front of the people. I want her to be confronted in the in in the eyes of the people and then we're going to burn her alive. When Tamar was brought forward, she requested as one last act if she could identify the father of the child by the possessions that the man had left behind. And Judah agreed. Immediately, he recognized the items. And he knew in that moment what had taken place. And we're told that he admitted his sin and he said that, you know what, Tamar, you're more righteous than I am because your motives were honorable motives. Or mine were, were not honorable. And we're told that twins were born to them and that God continued the line to Jesus through Judah and Tamar. Secondly, we have Rahab, Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6. Children of Israel were at the river. They're ready to cross over into the promised land, but there's a problem. The city of Jericho is waiting on the other side of the river and it has to be conquered before the promise of God can be realized for the Hebrew people. We're told that Joshua sent spies into the city to investigate and bring back a report prior to them crossing over and invading the city. The king of Jericho became aware of the fact that the spies were in the city and is seeking them out. The spies were saved because they were hidden by a prostitute from Jericho named Rahab, a Canaanite woman. When questioned by the king, she protected the spies, and she sent the king and his men searching in the opposite direction, outside the the city walls. We're told her house was located actually in the city walls, so she lowered the men to safety through the window by a rope. They promised to protect Rahab and her family when the city was destroyed. In chapter 6, we're told that Joshua honored the promise and brought Rahab and her family to live amongst the Hebrew people. Rahab's faith in God resulted in the deliverance of her family but not only that, she ended up marrying a Jewish man named Salmon and if you look at the genealogy they are in the line to Christ. Thirdly, we see Ruth. Ruth. The story of Ruth took place during the time of the judges. The story begins with an Israeli family, Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons, They temporarily relocated to Moab because of the famine. And while there, Elimelech died, and Naomi is left alone with her two sons. The sons married Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. And in time, we're told, both of her sons died, and Naomi was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law who were widows. Naomi received information that the famine back home in Israel had ended, and decided that in light of everything that had happened, the passing of her husband and her sons, it would be in her best interest to return back home. So she informed the women of her decision, and she encouraged them to stay in Moab, stay here with your parents, stay here with your families. The likelihood that an Israeli man is going to marry a Moabite widow is, is minimal at best, very likely possibility. And since both of them were young enough to remarry and have children, Naomi felt that their chances were better in Moab. Orpah decided to take Naomi's advice and stay with her family, try to start over and make something of her life. But Ruth, on the other hand, clung to Naomi, insisting that she go with her. Naomi relented, decided to allow Ruth to return to Israel with her, and both of them set off for Judah. Ruth, in the end, and it's a long story, which I'm not, the intention is not to share the whole story with you this morning, is that she ended up marrying a Jewish man named Boaz who was the son of Salmon and Rahab, the prostitute, the former prostitute. And we see that Ruth, too, became a mentioned part of the lineage of Jesus. And then the final one is Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't just call her Bathsheba. He refers to her as Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife, bringing back to the Jewish people the memories of an event that had happened. Uriah was a Hittite, but he was serving in David's army. And while David's army was off at war, David was on his rooftop and observed Bathsheba bathing. He lusted after her, even though both he and she were both married. He had her brought to him, and as a result of the adulterous affair, she became pregnant. Of course, in that situation, his first re- response was to cover it up. And so, to cover up his sin, he brought Uriah home, thinking that if he could bring him home and let him be with his wife, then no one would suspect that his wife was pregnant and no one would think that David is the father of the child. In David's mind, brilliant plan. But there's a problem Uriah is loyal. Uriah has integrity. He's loyal to the king. He's loyal to his fellow soldiers who are fighting for their lives in the front lines. And he says, how can I go home and be with my wife when my brothers are out there on the front lines risking their lives? And so he refused to go home to be with her, knowing that his comrades were fighting on the front lines. When David found out about this, all of a sudden now he has a dilemma. And so he added to his sin by arranging to have Uriah placed at the front of the battle once he returned, where he would certainly be killed in battle. David was now guilty of not only adultery, but also murder. Following Uriah's death, after some time and some confrontation and accountability, David became repentant. Bathsheba became his wife, and their son Solomon carried on the line to Jesus. Now, since Matthew is writing to Jews, the question that I would ask Matthew if I was having dinner with him is this. Matthew, if you felt the need to include women in the genealogy, why wouldn't you have chosen the matriarchs? Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. Why why wouldn't you have picked them? Why did you pick the women that you did. If the purpose of of Jewish genealogy, Matthew, is to demonstrate both moral and Jewish purity, why were four women who were either Gentiles or had strong Gentile connections included? Why did you do that, Matthew? We don't understand. And on top of that, some of them had sketchy pasts. Why would you include them? in the genealogy. Well, I believe Matthew would answer us because it becomes clear as you read the entire book of what Matthew is setting out to do from the very beginning. Matthew's purpose is to demonstrate to his readers that, first of all, Jesus is born a Savior, he says, to all people, to all people. Even though these four were women, and even though they were all outsiders, and even though some of them had questionable paths, paths, their faith in God resulted in them being invited to the table and to become a significant part of what God was doing in the redemption of mankind. So, God, in his great mercy... And grace has invited us into his story. We all in this place this morning have a story. Our lives tell a story of where we've come from and what we've gone through and what we've had to face and the decisions and the implications. We all have a story and our story. God invites our story into his story. God invites all of us today to sit at his table, to experience his grace and his mercy in our lives. It's a privilege to be invited to his table. We've not earned the right to be there. Outside of his grace, we don't deserve to be there. But he invites those whose Hearts are open to the things of God. Those who have a longing for God in their lives, those who are hungry for God, God's table is for those who are flawed and broken, those who have failed, those who have been hurt, those who have hurt others, those who have made significant mistakes. Those of us who have been betrayed. Those of us who have betrayed others. He invites those who've experienced deep loss. Those who are struggling. Those who are sick. Those who are tired. Those who are rejected. Those who seem to lack purpose in their lives. See, those who seem to lack hope in their lives. Those who don't know where to turn. Those who don't know what to do. Us. God's table is open to those who appear to not belong, yet want to belong. Those who are searching and willing to respond to his invitation to come. We don't earn our way to the table through our years of service. We don't earn our way to the table because of our biblical knowledge. We can't earn our way to the table because we have a spiritual facade. We can't be at the table because of the positions that we hold. Our place at the table is a privilege because we know that outside of the grace of God, we would never have been invited to come to it. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back and our communion servers to prepare to serve us this morning as we end our service with communion. Folks, it's not those who believe they deserve to be invited that find a place at God's table, that become his table guest. Rather, it is those who are the most undeserving yet are drawn to the wonder of God. That's the only reason I find myself seated at his table in this Christmas season. It's the only reason you find yourself there. And so my challenge to all of us this morning as we celebrate his table, because we're going to come around his table now because we've been invited to do so, is would we respond to his invitation and find our seat Find our place at his table in this Advent season where we celebrate the first coming and anticipate the second coming of our Savior.